1986, my brother Larry took me to my very first rock concert, David Bowie, The Glass Spider Tour. I remember it like it was really two days ago. We were driving in his car to the Pontiac Silverdome of blessed memory right outside Detroit for the concert. And as soon as we pulled out of our driveway, he popped a cassette. In those days, we had cassettes. There wasn't such things as CDs. He popped a cassette into the radio player, and he put on David Bowie music. I was 13 years old. I didn't know much. It was my first concert. I was nervous, excited. I didn't know what to do with all of my energy. And I said, Larry, we're going to hear two hours of David Bowie. Why would you play David Bowie on the way to hear David Bowie? And he said, you don't understand. I've been to lots of concerts. And when you go to a concert, you've got to get in the mood of the person you're going to see. And the best way to get in the mood is to play the music of the person you're about to see. Well, I've been blessed, thank God, to go to a lot of concerts since that time of my life. And I realized that my brother Larry was right. And that advice always holds true. When I go see a concert, I always start playing the music of the entertainer we're going to see, sometimes weeks and days and even hours in advance, because it prepares me for the environment, for the song, for what I'm going to do when we are at the concert together. Why do I tell you that story on the Shabbat? I tell you that story because our synagogue is sending more than 120 people to Washington, D.C. Some are leaving this afternoon, some tonight, some tomorrow. And what is the largest delegation from the Northeast to the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee Policy Conference in Washington, D.C., APEC? And as we are about to embark on Washington, and members of the policy conference and APAC supporters will have the privilege of listening to the President of the United States tomorrow morning and the Prime Minister of Israel Monday night, in addition to a whole host of other leaders, legislators, writers, editorials, scholars, I thought appropriate for us to do what my brother Larry taught, and that is to have a little conversation, a little thought about Israel and some of the things going on. And lucky for us, there has been a full plate, a full agenda of items over the last few weeks for us to talk about. Let me just list a couple that will pop out in your minds. The first is a date and a time that has been touted around of the notion that in September of this coming year, the United Nations plans on making a unilateral declaration of independence for the Palestinian state isolating Israel and giving Israel and others no choice in its matter or the definition of its borders. Then this past Sunday, which was May 15th, was Nakba Day. Nakba is an Arabic word which means catastrophe. It's a day that's commemorated by all of the Mideast for those who are opposed to Israel's right to exist. It is a day when Israel declared its independence in 1948 on the English calendar and a day that is commemorated through all types of riots and pogroms and anger. On that day, this commemoration, there was a three-tiered front. Three tiers by that in Lebanon, Syria, and Egypt that tried to push through the borders of Israel and what they call the symbolic gesture, symbolically reclaiming land that was taken from them in 1948. However, when 100 to 200 mass rioters pushed through an army front and barbed wire in a riotous faction, it doesn't really look like what is ceremonial or what is supposed to be representative 
of them coming back to take their land. Rather, it looked like the beginning of incitement, perhaps an intifada. Then perhaps some of you might have read the editorial in Tuesday's New York Times written by the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, where he proudly and unabashedly rewrote history and how he understood the events of the Declaration of Israel's Independence, the foundation of the state, and the wars that happened and ensued. For those of you who were shocked by the article, you shouldn't be. You see, Mahmoud Abbas actually earned a PhD denying the Holocaust. I'm not making this fact up. He wrote his dissertation on the idea that the Holocaust never happened, that perhaps a few hundred thousand Jews actually died in Eastern Europe, but nothing close to the numbers that were claimed before. So the idea that Mahmoud Abbas would use the platform of the New York Times to rewrite history is not shocking to me whatsoever. It's shocking to me when people drink it and celebrate it and understand it as the truth. Fortunately, much of the Jewish and non-Jewish leadership responded appropriately to Mahmoud Abbas and his writings and claiming that he rewrote history in a way that doesn't even resemble in the slightest fact what is the truth versus what is fiction. We then had on Wednesday, the President of the United States invited 200 members of the Jewish community into the East Room of the White House to celebrate Jewish Heritage Month. In it, it was a declaration that May will always serve as Jewish Heritage Month and to celebrate the deep bonds between the Jewish people who have established, helped establish this land and celebrate and flourish in this land and the people of Israel and Americans overall. And then Thursday, the president gave his much-awaited speech on the Arab Spring and things happening in the Mideast, and then, of course, went into great detail about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And then yesterday, the president met with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu from Israel. Tomorrow, the president will speak at APAC, and the main topic of his address will be Jewish-American relations. And on Monday night... President Netanyahu will lay out his major points for what he believes is a peace plan between the Palestinians and the Israelis. So, that's kind of like going to the Bowie concert. There's a lot going on in this world and in this time, and a lot in particular that has drawn the radars to go crazy for all of us who are concerned, worried, love Israel, its peace, and its safety. There has been a lot of reverberation on all types of these issues, and I could literally stand at this podium and pontificate for hours upon hours on any one of those items I mentioned for you. But I want to speak for a moment about something connected to it that I think is critical, and that is what the president spoke about on Thursday and what was his hope for a plan of peace. Now, when literally within minutes of the president's speech, there was all types of backlash. People who were very angered and upset. Some Israelis, some Americans, some foreign, some domestic. Some who thought that the president was far too harsh on Israel. Some who thought the president was far too light on Israel. Some who thought the president threw Israel and Zionists underneath the bus. And some who thought that it was the most courageous act that any U.S. president has ever done to further peace between Israelis and Palestinians. That debate will continue to go on for a long time. Anyone who thinks that the Arab-Israeli conflict began on November 29, 1947, when the United Nations took a vote 
and Lake Success, New York, as to whether or not we should partition the strip of land into what was nothing under a British mandate, formerly under the Turkish Empire, into what will be two states. Anyone who thought that the Arab-Israeli conflict began then is kidding themselves. It began long before then. And it's continued. And that war of independence that ensued in May of 15th of 1948 hasn't stopped since. But I want to tell you my own two cents. And I'll be honest with you. I struggled on whether or not I should share this with you this morning. Because it's shul, I'm a rabbi, I'm not a politician, and most rabbis I know don't go out there and tell you what they believe, especially when it comes to politics, because they're fearful. But I realized it's not being true to myself. So some of you might like me for saying it. Some of you might be disgusted at me for saying it. That's okay. It really is. I just hope as I would for you and you would for me, that you will respect me as I will respect you, even if we have different views. As a rabbi, I'm not just going to come out and tell you what I think. I've got to couch it in a story, because that's what we're paid to do, and that's what we train for six years. So I'm going to give you a historical story, a true story. It's a story that happened in the year 2000. It happened in Camp David, and there were three major players in the equation. Player one was the Prime Minister of Israel, Ehud Barak. Player two was the exiting President of the United States, Bill Clinton. And player three was the leader of the Palestinian people at the time, before there was a Palestinian Authority, and his name was Yasser Arafat. There, Clinton, who had seemed to weather incredible storms as a president, both personally and professionally, he wanted to put one more notch on his accomplishments. And in doing so, he wanted to be a president who would be remembered for securing Mideast peace. Now, remember, it was under Clinton's watch that King Abdullah of Jordan and Yitzhak Rabin stood at the front lawn the White House and shook hands in what is now a real peace. It might be chilly at times, but it works. There are many people in this room who have visited Petra, many people in this room who have toured to Jordan. That wouldn't have happened before that treaty, just like the treaty before in Cairo. So at Camp David, negotiations went back and forth as to how Clinton could push this peace to happen before his presidency ended. Even if Gore or Bush, whoever it was going to be that got the election at the time, would take over, no one at that time knew, what was he going to do to get this process going? He pushed and he pushed. And as Dennis Ross, the Mideast negotiator, comments in his book, that Ehud Barak's light was on at 3 o'clock in the morning, and it wasn't from jet lag, and smoke was going out the windows from the cigarettes that he had given up years before, as he paced back and forth all throughout the camp, trying to decide what he could do, realizing that he had a very good chance, if he gave up too much, of risking soldiers' lives and innocent civilians' lives by putting Israel in harm. He also realized that his own life would be very much in jeopardy by giving up too much. We all get that. Look at Rabin. Look at Sadat. But he also realized that the status quo in Israel couldn't continue to exist that the status quo could not continue because demographics are not with them. And people cannot continue to
to stand at bus stops knowing when they kiss their husband and wife, their mother or father, their son or daughter goodbye as they go off to work or school, is it going to be the last time I see them because a terrorist is going to take their life? He realized fully this couldn't continue the same way. So Barak offered the farm. He offered everything to Yasser Arafat. He offered more than the president said yesterday or Thursday in his speech of what should be given up. At the time, he basically said, take all of Gaza and all of the 1967 borders and let us keep three major settlement blocks of which we will trade for you. We'll make this area demilitarized and this will be the process of peace. These three major settlement areas include small towns in effect, the size of Kloster or Demarest, where a few 50 to 100,000 Jewish people live, like Efrat or Ma'ale Adumim. The offer was extended with great internal strife for Arab Barak, and it was rejected by Arafat and the Palestinian people. And it was immediately followed, immediately followed by the Second Intifada. The Second Intifada, something amazing happened in Israel. What was amazing is that the majority of Israelis in the 70 to 80 percentile were in favor unanimously, when I say 70, 80, I'm talking overwhelmingly, of how Israel responded to the Second Intifada. Now, if you remember, that was the time of targeted assassinations in Gaza and the West Bank. It was the time of checkpoints where people going to work at 9 o'clock who needed to leave at 8 to get there had to get up at 4 to go through three hours of checkpoints. It was a time of terrible oppression and embarrassment for the Palestinian people. But most Israelis were in favor of it. And it's not because they're in favor of that treatment. It's because they were divided before and after Barak offered all of these concessions and it was rejected. It was an outward sign, an outward sign of where our partner for peace stood and what we had to do. It's nothing we celebrated making checkpoints and humiliating people as we strip searched them to make sure they didn't have explosives or detonators on them. It's nothing that brings us pride or happiness. It's nothing that brings us pride or happiness to have a targeted assassination, realizing that you're jeopardizing the soldiers who are doing the assassination and the innocent bystanders that are there. But it's a reality. And what we call in Israel 51 to 49 in an election, a landslide, the idea, the idea that 80 percent of the people were in favor of the Israelis' response during the Second Intifada is absolutely mind-blowing. So why do I share that line with you? I share that line with you because very, very simply, the only recipe for peace, the only way peace is going to happen in your lifetime or my lifetime or my children's lifetime is when we have two willing partners for peace. That was exemplified when King Abdullah, King Hussein rather, came from Jordan and made peace with Rabin on the front lawn. That was exemplified when Anwar Sadat landed at Ben-Gurion and came off the plane. Here's a little anecdote that most people don't know. There is an international rule that when a head of state comes and visits another state, that a member, a representative of that state, must greet them at the airport. That's why you normally see when heads of state come, a big red carpet and some dignitary, a vice president, a secretary of state, a labor treasurer, somebody greets them. The fear was that Sadat was pulling a prank on the Israelis and that the plane would land the doors would open and they would open fire on the head of the Israeli government. Menachem Begin decided to greet Sadat. He was fearful that his life would be taken at that time, along with the other leaders who were with him. The door opened and immediately Sadat's face emerged. 
And he didn't wait to come down the stairs. He came down the stairs and he shook hands with Begin. And he said to him, I'm not bluffing. I'm not bluffing. And because of his earnest interest in making peace, it happened. So why do I share all this with you? I share this with you because if we sit and we wait for our partner in peace to come forward with their negotiation plan of what they want and where we want it to be, we're going to be in a big problem. We won't ever have peace in my lifetime, your lifetime, or our great-great-grandchildren's lifetime. And worse off, we won't have a land. We won't have a land because there's a realistic fact that's happening that we cannot be naive about. We cannot be in denial about. And here's the fact. The fact is, time is not on our side. Time is not on our side. Demographically, the numbers of Palestinians versus the numbers of Israelis that are being birthed in the same area are absolutely unequal. And in just a matter of time, we're going to have an equal population. When one family is producing 15 children and an Israeli family is producing 1.7 children, you tell me mathematically when the change is going to happen. And we are a Jewish state and a democratic state. We can't be one or the other of those two things. They're intrinsically connected. If we give up one of those, we're in big trouble. So what's going to happen? Are we going to become South Africa? Are we going to have a population that represents a significant portion or percentage of the land and rule over them and not give them rights to serve in the military, to vote, or any representation of jobs and where they can and can't travel? Is that the kind of land we want Israel to be? No Israeli wants that. No Jew wants that. We are forced to face the reality of this two-state solution. No one wants to give up land that our brothers and sisters bled for and died on the hills of so that we could have. So that we can have an old city and we can have Jericho and we can have Hebron. No one wants that. But we can't be naive to the reality. And if we want to wait for our partner to come forward and tell you what they want and how they're going to work in peace with us, we'll be waiting a very long time. So I believe we have to do what Ehud Barak did. And I believe it's the responsibility of both the American and Israeli leadership to come forward with this real, serious, comprehensive plan. A comprehensive plan that has serious and painful concessions within it. Concessions that will hurt you and me and Israelis. That will cause fear to continue. And we will then know, do we have a partner for peace or not? Because if we don't, if we don't have that partner, we must prove to the world, we must prove to America, and most importantly, we have to prove to ourselves that we tried everything first to make this peace before it didn't happen. We must try. And we have the same obligations on the other side. We must obligate, as the president laid out and presidents before him laid out, that there must be a renouncement of full terror. That there must be unabashed, unambiguous recognition of the state of Israel and its right to exist. And that the state of Israel has every right to defend itself by itself at all times. We cannot simply wait for our partner to come forward with their concessions because we don't have the luxury of time to do that. It doesn't make me satisfied to stand up here and tell you that. It doesn't make me happy. But it is the reality. This idea of Mideast peace, as I told you when we began, 
didn't begin on November 29, 1947. The problem didn't start on May 15, 1948. There's no particular date in history that one can point to and say, this is where the root of all of our problem existed. Regardless of what Arab protesters will tell you about May 15th and Nakba Day. Not a one. There's not one day we can point to. And sadly, while I can't tell you the future, I can probably tell you that there won't be one day in history we can turn forward to and tell you in the future that will be the day when all Israelis and Palestinians will put their head on a soft pillow and all will be happy, satisfied, and free from fear. It's not going to happen. It's going to take a long time. And for those who don't think it's going to take a long time, just look at the paper this week. When for the first time in her life, the Queen went to Ireland and we thought we had a great peace between the Brits and the Irish. And they found a bomb on her route that was intended to hurt her. After all these years of quiet and silence, clearly they're still upset. Clearly, peace is quite fragile between Britain and Ireland. The peace that we solve is not going to be something that's going to make every Israeli and Arab walk hand in hand, arm in arm, sharing coffee together while playing backgammon. We can rid ourselves of those naive and idealistic notions in our head. But we also have to remember that realism and time are our responsibility. And we have to be the courageous ones to stand forward. Do we do it in full realization that we might not have a partner for peace? Yes. Do we do it in full realization of what the return might be? Absolutely. Does it mean that we vacate the lands and make every Israeli and every major airport vulnerable? Absolutely not. But it means that we work with the very raison d'etre that the country was founded on that became its anthem. That is Hatikva, the hope. Because if we're all ready to give up hope, then none of us are true Zionists. If we're ready to forsake hope and we're ready to take chance, not ready to take chances, then we're not ready to be Zionists. Because inherent in being a Zionist is the idea, Odlo Abda Tikva Tenu, that we have never lost our hope and our desire. May it be our bracha that through the work of God, through the work of our leadership, through the work and determination and courage of all of these nations involved, may we find our hope, our prayer, and our miracle that one day, as Israelis who love our land, we can put our head down in peace, free from terror, free from horror, free from the idea that there will be no tomorrow in our homeland. May that be God's will, and may it happen through our prayers.